0: Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem. That is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Lech Lecha. Get Yourself Out. The address is Breshit, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 17, verse 27. The reading date will be Shabbat, and I am your author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman. Some of you may have noticed that I have changed my intro music from the first two shows. Uh, to this current techno beat that you just heard. I am proud to confess that that song was um, composed, performed, and written, I should say, by a very, very good friend of mine by the name of uh, Ryan Kingsley, who also happens to be a member of the congregation that I attend in Thornton, Colorado, Kehi Ryan and I have been good friends for probably about, I don't know, eight or nine months, ...and uh, he's got a passion for techno music, so I commissioned him to write me a new intro and outro song for my Torah commentaries. You're also going to be hearing more of his music from time to time as I update and upload different podcasts. I'll feature different songs by him. and One of these days I'll find a way to sneak in an entire song of his on one of my podcasts, okay? But at the meantime... If you want to contact Ryan, you can just simply contact me. My email is yeshua613 at hotmail.com, and I'll make sure that Ryan gets the email. The particular song that we uh, that I chose for my intro music this time is a song that Ryan wrote. It's called Shema, and uh, I, I think I like it. I hope you do, too. Um, also, I'm proud to say that he's a student of mine, a Talmud of mine, studying Torah underneath me. And uh, we have a great time working together uh, day by day and studying together as well. Okay, This particular podcast, or commentary, I should say, or the, or the uh, uh, written version, was updated on November 1st of 2006. All quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible, translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech ha'olam. Asher bachar banu mikol ha'ameim, v'natan lanu et torato. Baruch ata Adonai noten haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You've selected us from among all the peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Welcome to Parashat Lech Lecha. This commentary will address the following topics. Uh, Anti-Judaism, Avram and his progeny. And then we'll talk about credited to him as righteousness. We'll also talk about repairing the breach Uh, today, so it will be an exciting commentary. I hope you will uh, listen to the entire thing and be blessed. Before we get started, I want to say at the onset that some of the commentary that I'm going to be providing today, it just may appear to be slightly reproving and correcting to some of you. Now, correction at times can be unpleasant, I realize, but that's okay, because the Torah has been given to us for reproof and correction when we need it. You can read 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 for that reference. It's not really my intent to openly offend or belittle anyone, so I would ask that you please allow the Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, to have his way in you as you study the pages of Hashem's wonderful word this particular hour. Okay, sit back and strap yourselves in, because we have finally come to a place in the Torah where the narrative will begin to slow down a bit. In fact, if we... Uh, Look backwards by way of retrospect, the Torah has spent the last 11 chapters covering everything from the creation account to the fall of man, the birth of the first offspring, the first death, the first atonement, a series of lengthy genealogical lists are also in there, and then the world deluge. We also have the Tower of Babel. Uh, the Tower of Babel, and the first official biblical covenant between man and Hashem. All of that in the first uh, 11 verses. And yet, all of this information covers a time period of about 2,000 years. Yet in comparison, the story that we are about to embark on centers around one man and his journey to become the father of Hashem's chosen heritage of people. That is to say, the Jewish nation for this uh, Uh, at at this particular time. This is well before the Gentiles get added in mass, way up in Acts chapter 2. For now, we're just going to focus on the Jewish side of Israel. Avram's story unfolds before us, and the Torah uses the next 13 chapters to do so, while the time period covered is approximately one twentieth of that of the previously mentioned material. Isn't that neat to find out? You might pause and ask yourself at this point in time, what is Hashem trying to convey to us with the uh, the differences in the, what material being covered in the first 11 chapters and then now, the, the next 13? Are the details surrounding the beginnings of humanity less important to our God than one man from Ur? I don't think so. Of course not, we would answer. What I believe our God is teaching us here is that sometimes his word, how shall I say, majors on the majors and minors on the minors, kind of upsets us, but in other words, While at times we would hope for more information on certain aspects of the Torah, Hashem has graciously provided us with exactly the right amount needed to live our lives according to His instructions and remaining pleasing to Him. Having said all that, interestingly enough, by using a computer-assisted word search, I've discovered that the name Abram, whom I'll call Avram from this time forward, is found about 46 times in the whole Bible. Using the same resources, the name Abraham, whom I'll call Avraham, from this time forward, is found 216 times in the Bible. Now, these numbers do not reflect the possibility of another man other than... I'm sorry, these numbers do reflect the possibility of another man other than the main character of our parsha bearing the same name. I didn't factor that possibility out. Yet, surely... Most, if not all, someone else can care to do the math for me, um, most surely refer to our very own Avraham. So, let's read about this father of many nations. Our portion gets its name from the opening statement from Hashem, Lech Lecha. This particular section is called anti-Judaism, Avraham and his progeny. The Torah says in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, let me read it for you in Hebrew. Vayomer Adonai el Avram, lechlecha lecha mi'artzecha, u'mimoladadacha, u'mibait avicha el ha'aretz asher arecha, ve'e'ethcha logoy gadol, ve'avrechecha, ve'agdala shmecha v'hayye bracha. The translation is Now Adonai said to Avram Get yourself out of your country Away from your kinsmen And away from your father's house And go to the land that I will show you I will make you a great nation I will bless you and I will make your name great, and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you, and by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The opening monologue from Hashem, containing both directives and promises, is packed with some very important facts that affect every man, woman, and child who will be born from here on out. To be sure, still affects everyone today. How so? Allow me to conduct a word study. We've been taught many times over, hopefully, that is, that you're getting this from churches and synagogues, many times over that the verse, uh, verse 3 of the verses I just read above, verse 3 is referring to the ultimate blessing that Avram would be once his ultimate righteous heir was born. And by you all the families of the earth will be blessed, is the phrase in, uh, in focus here. The Torah makes it perfectly clear that this righteous heir is none other than Yeshua, ben Yosef, ben David, ben Avraham. And you can back that up by looking at Matthew chapter 1. This is who uh, the Moshe was writing about. But our usual sermons focus on the latter part of that verse, and by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We usually hear the sermon or the midrash in a messianic synagogue done on that particular part of the verse. But I want to call attention to the first part of verse 3, the first part. Let me read it back for you again. And let me emphasize some different words. Um, I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you. And by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So rather than focusing on part B of the verse, let me focus on part A of the verse, okay? Here, Hashem promises to bless those who bless Avram. The Hebrew wording used both times for bless is the root word barach. And it literally means to bow the knee. This promise is understood to be extending to his physical offspring as well, which, for our purpose, we're going to call the Jewish people. Um, moreover, we have seen that many peoples of the world, symbolically and physically, have, in fact, blessed Avram. They've done exactly what this verse promised would happen. To be sure, we don't hear of many individuals actually, how should we say, cursing Avram, or his offspring, the Jews, Now, of course, a few unmentioned exceptions do exist, but we don't need to go into that for this particular study. You could say from Hashem's perspective, he has set up a sort of divine uh, cause and effect here. And here's what I mean by that. Quote, If you, a non-Jew, bless Avram, or his offspring, then in return, I will bless you. In a sense, that's what God is saying. If you bless Avram's physical offspring, I, for my part, Hashem says, will bless you. But the really interesting fact is found in the Hebrew word translated as curse in this particular verse. That's where I want to kind of slow down a bit. In the first instance where it says, I will bless those who bless you, but curse anyone who curses you, in the first instance of the word translated curse, in my translation out of of, of the uh, Complete Jewish Bible by David H. Stern, the root word of the word curse comes from the word arar. A-R-A-R. That's the root word of curse there. Here's what Strong's Concordance and Brown-Driver-Briggs and Gesenius Hebrew Lexicon have to say about this particular word, "arar." Okay, the, the Strong's number is 0779. "Arar" is a primitive root, and it means to curse, and it's found that way 62 times. Bitterly, it's found once, and its total usage, according to Strong's, is 63 times. So we have the curse at 62, and bitterly, like a like a um, modification of the word curse found once it goes on to describe the word this way the lexicon says to curse cursed be he Um, in in the cursed be he we have the participle used as in curses Uh, it means to be cursed or cursed or lay under a curse to put a curse on to be made a curse be cursed that's really what we're talking about okay and again, that's from the BDB and Strong's Corden BDB, by the way, is my way of saying Brown, Driver, Briggs, and Jacinius Hebrew Lexicon. I'll just say BDB from here on out. Wow, if we stop and think about how we just read that dictionary definition of RR, cursed, that's, that's some heavy language. Especially, and this is most noteworthy, especially when we realize that this is the sovereign creator of the universe speaking this promise here. We don't want God making sure on this word in our account. If God says he's going to curse you. you, you, I mean, we could speculate all day as to what that might look like. But to be honest with you, if God is the one doing it, and it's a reaction to us cursing Avram, I don't want to be on the receiving end of that curse. So regardless of what it might look like, God is the one who's making sure it comes to pass. But Here's where it gets interesting. The second word translated as curse in our verse, you know, I will curse those that curse you, surprisingly, is not the same as the first. In the formulation for bless those that bless you, it is the same, barach, barach, both times. But I promise, look up in the Hebrew, use your Strongs and your um, lexicons to find this out, to back me up. The second time, the word is not arar. In fact, this time, the original word is taken from the word kalal. In fact, in our current parasha, our current portion here, in chapter 16, verse 4, we find that the Hebrew translates this word as contempt. That's how it's translated in many versions, kalal. Especially in chapter 16, verse 4, it uses the word contempt when referring to the attitude that Sarai, remember she's Abram's wife, Avram's wife, it it uses this uh, word contempt to describe the attitude that she had towards her handmaid Hagar. Here's what Strong's and the B-S-D this time, I'm sorry, the B-D-B, here's what Strong's and the B-D-B of Concordance have to say about that word, Kalal. You ready? It's Strong's number 07043. Kalal, it's also a primitive root, if I'm looking at the word Kalal it is, and it means curse 39 times, it means swifter 5 times, it means light, thing five times, it means vile four times, lighter four times, despise three times, abated four times, ease twice, light twice, lighten twice, slightly twice, and then there are 12 miscellaneous other usage, according to um, Strong's. So, its total usage throughout the Tanakh, or Old Testament, is 82 times, counting up, uh, adding up all those different nuances there. So let me just read the uh, definition according to the lexicon, okay? It means to be slight, be swift, be trifling, be of little account, be light, be abated. Of, and when referring to water, it means abated. It means to be trifling, to be swift, to show oneself swift, to appear trifling, to be too trifling, to be insignificant, to be lightly esteemed, It means to make despicable, it means to curse, to be cursed, to make light, to lighten, to treat with contempt, to bring contempt or dishonor, to shake, to whet, to shake oneself, to be moved to and fro. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. After listening to that, I hope that this list is a shocker. You're thinking, wow, I didn't know that Kalal meant that. Especially when we compare it to what the other word Arar arar means. To curse, to be cursed, uh, to lay under a curse, to put a curse on, to be made a curse. But listen to what the nuances are of this other word. To be light, to be trifling, to lightly esteem, to make despicable. We usually find ourselves thinking... You know, as a believer in Messiah Yeshua, I would never meaningfully curse Avram, or his offspring, the Jews. And as a believer in Messiah, I understand that my spiritual heritage is forever bound up in their lineage. Of course, I'm referring to the olive tree theology of Romans chapter 11. I realize that the offspring of Abraham is my heritage, because from the offspring of Abraham came the Messiah Yeshua himself. And so I'm a spiritual Jew, I might say, as a Christian. I would never curse my family tree. But the shocker is that according to the word used for curse in this particular um, definition, Kalan, according to this word, I'm afraid that many well-meaning believers are unknowingly cursing Avram and his offspring. If I were to translate this verse using our newfound definitions of the word curse, it would read something like this. Now this is my translation using... Kalal and Arar, according to the nuances I just read. Okay, Let me read the verse again, and then I'll insert the words that we have just read. I will bless, bow the knee, those who bless, bow the knee, you. But I will curse, that is, be accursed, cursed Arar. I will curse anyone who Kalal, and what I mean now is, I will curse anyone who... Despises, makes of little account, lightly esteems, thinks insignificant of you, and by you all the families of the earth will be blessed, Bracha. Wow. That seems to explain the verse in a whole different light if you think about it. God says that I will braha I will bless, I will brach those who brach you, I will bless those who bless you, but I will arar anyone who callals you. And arar means curse, but Kalal means to despise, make of little account, lightly esteem things insignificant of. And so, that seems to explain the verse in a whole different light, and so it should. For that is what I really believe the verse is alluding to. And allow me to elaborate, because I know I'm going to make some of you upset by saying, well, gosh, Ariel, what are you talking about? Let's go back into history. Part of this is very, very, very saddening, but it it bears repeating for our study. In the 4th century, when the organized church decided to divorce herself from her spiritual mother, which of course was Judaism, I believe she unwittingly planted the seeds of what I like to call anti-Judaism. Now, anti-Judaism is not to be confused with anti-Semitism. The former is the dislike or disinterest of Jewishness and Judaism specifically. That's anti-Judaism. The latter, however, is the dislike or disinterest dis, or disinterest in the Semitic race altogether. Um, that's where we get the difference: anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism. Maybe one is an anti, is a dislike for the religion of Judaism, whereas anti-Semitism is it's it's just racially, and it's wrong. By the way, both of these anti-Judaism or anti-Semitism, they both fall into the category of violating the verse in an examination, and I believe that both are disrespectful. The father Avram and ultimately that means they're displeasing to Hashem because anti-Judaism, a dislike for the Jewish religion itself, is a dislike for what God has established as the lifestyle of the Jewish people. Judaism, the religion, is in fact a lifestyle as practiced by the Jewish people and if you dislike Judaism, then it's like saying you dislike the lifestyle of the Jewish people and that's really wrong as well And, of course, I don't have to say anything about how wrong anti-Semitism is. We all know how wrong that is. But back to history. Over the centuries, this seedbed that I referred to earlier has indeed blossomed into a full-grown weed called replacement theology. Um, And you might ask, what is replacement theology? This heretical belief, replacement theology, fosters the mistaken idea that, quote, God gave up on the Jews when they corporately rejected his son Yeshua, and instead adopted the newborn Gentile church as his chosen people. It goes on to say, or uh, you know, ostensibly teach, that the unfortunate Jews were left to face the curses of the Torah and the wrath of an angry father, while the church inherited, spiritually of course, most of the blessings and promises to the Jews as pronounced in the Torah. End quote. That's replacement theology another heresy alongside of that that I didn't mention in my written commentary is um, the the uh, theology that teaches that Israel has not really been replaced by the church but rather there is a parallel bride known as the church so that rather than replacement theology we might call it I guess a parallel a parallelism or dualism where we have two brides we have the bride of Christ being the church and the bride of of HaShem being the Jewish people themselves. And I don't have time to go into that particular heresy, but um, for this particular study, fortunately, as far as replacement theology is concerned, fortunately, this theological framework is neither blatantly taught to Christians, openly favored by the same, nor endorsed by HaShem. However, you and I both know that the damage has been done. Bad habits are hard to change. Our Christian community today, in my opinion, is lacking of real spiritual depth. In fact, pastors will also reflect on this same notion that the church is losing her moral uh, direction and and, and many well-meaning believers scratch their head and can't figure out why. Why are we so shallow and empty today as believers? Our Christian community today is lacking of real spiritual depth and many so-called believers have what we recognize as a superficial relationship with Yeshua. And I believe we owe a significant part of all of this to the teachings that have been passed down from one anti-Jewish generation to the next. It's just perpetual. Consequently, many Christians are either passive and ignorant when it comes to the Jewish people and community support for the Jewish people, or, in some cases, God forbid, they're outright opposed to it. The Torah, the prophets, and the writings, which we refer to as the Tanakh, have been relegated in such Christian communities to the status of what has been referred to as Old Testament, while by comparison the Gospel, that is the uh, stories of Yeshua and the letters of Paul, they seem to enjoy the status of New Testament. Using those labels alone, Old Testament and New Testament, has a way of causing the Jews to appear old, outdated, outmoded, and replaced. While by comparison, the church is defined in these same communities as new, fresh, and current. It's really sad, isn't it? Obviously, I'm not speaking of every Christian community out there. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying today. And that's a refreshing Notion to know that there are many well-meaning believers who support Israel and the Jewish people, but unfortunately, what I've just described—Old Testament, New Testament— isn't it in fact the prevailing attitude of many non-Jews within the body today? Have you met a, another Christian who is currently or who has held this particular uh, viewpoint about the Jewish people? You know, they're the old people of God; they've been replaced. Have you ever met someone like that? Sometimes I hear uh, a well-meaning non-Jewish believer say something like this uh, to me when I'm dialoguing with them. You know, Ariel, your people prove difficult to positively influence with regards to the good news in Jesus, is what they might say. And that mindset, as a result, you know that that um, that way of thinking that our Jewish people are difficult to influence with regards to the good news. Um, fosters a weak effort among Jewish evangelism and as a result Jewish evangelism is weak it's understaffed or in the few cases where churches have tried eventually Jewish evangelism is abandoned altogether they just give up on it because it's very hard to reach Jewish people even if it's not intentional what I'm describing this type of spiritual ignorance still feeds the replacement theological bias in that no one is made aware enough to put an end to it. No one is talking about it and exposing it. In other words, in my opinion, this ignorance has gone on far too long. This section of my commentary is now called Repairing the Breach, this next section. Repairing the Breach. I hope after everything I've just said, you're probably starting to think to yourself, gosh, what can I do to change either myself or to change the community that I'm in? What can be done to induce some of the damage and help repair the split between Avram's offspring and the church? Since most of my readership, and, and by now, according to this podcast, my listenership, is likely composed of Christians and Messianic Jews, that's not to say that I don't wish that non-Messianic Jews would listen to this commentary or read my um, the papers that I write, but unfortunately, pragmatically, I know that most of you listening are probably... Uh, Christians and Messianic Jews. So, because that's my, my audience today, I'm going to focus my energies in those camps to the Christians and to the Messianic Jew listening to me today. More information that I can post in this limited format is really available to anyone who's seriously considering answering this timely and important question. What can we do to repair the damage? I'm sure you'll agree the following suggestions that I'm about to give you are a start in the right direction. So, from Christian to Messianic Jew, here we go. Here's some suggestions. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just my 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 idea of getting started, okay? Bullet number one. As a Christian, as a Messianic Jew, with the Spirit of God living inside of you, begin to pray about God. Getting actively involved in the current move of the Ruach HaKodesh. That's the Holy Spirit. The current move to bring about a genuine, heartfelt love for Avram's offspring. Oriented from the church and flowing outwards. Begin to pray about it. There is a move, a grassroots movement in the church today. To return to the Hebraic heritage from which we have sprung to return to the roots of our faith, to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know there's a movement. You wouldn't be listening to this podcast if there wasn't. Bullet number two. Ask Hashem to reveal to you your heart. Say, Father, show me myself. I pray this prayer as well, by the way. And ask Hashem to forgive you if you have unknowingly harbored these types of thoughts towards the Jewish people, Avram's offspring. We, of course, affirm that God is still in the business of forgiveness. God can forgive you. God can forgive me if that's the attitude that I've had. What I'm trying to say is that my brothers, according to the flesh, that is to say, traditional Judaism, unsaved Jews, non-Messianic Jews, secular Jews, whoever you want to call them, what they need to experience from you, the believer, is the genuine mercy of Hashem, displayed through our honest concern, and support. Bullet number three is, ask Hashem to begin to reveal to you your spiritual heritage traced through faithful Avram and continuing through to his offspring. Maybe you didn't know that the root that supports you is Abraham, and that the nourishing sap is the Messiah Yeshua himself. That's a midrash on Romans chapter 11 in the olive tree. The root supporting the branches, Paul says in that passage, is Abraham and the fathers. Maybe you didn't know that. Today I'm revealing that to you. And so you might have to ask Hashem to continue to reveal that to you and open that uh, truth to you. You'll find that according to Romans chapter 11, just to name a good starting point, that you have some obligations to the root that supports you. Read Romans 11. You know, even after this genuine call for restoration, I'm afraid that some people will yet refuse to change their conventional ways of thinking. I'm quite certain that some people listening to this podcast and others who may not ever hear it are just going to say, No, Ariel, I refuse to believe what you have to say. To be sure, I don't expect Gentiles to begin flooding my email with letters asking me to forgive them for quote-unquote lightly esteeming the Jews. I, I I don't see that happening. No, I'm afraid this type of heartfelt change is not accomplished overnight. And it can only make a difference if the real Kokodesh is genuinely involved. So, as a Torah teacher, as a friend, I expect that it will take some time for human nature to readjust its mindset and line up with, that, with, uh, with what Hashem wants it to be. It takes time, and I understand that. To be sure, the change must start with me, with this author, Father, change me, change my heart. Help me to have a right attitude towards Avram and his offspring. Help me to have a heartfelt love for genuine Christians and non-Jews. After all, which one of us is perfect? Only the man, Yeshua from Nazareth was perfect. That being said, please feel free to drop me a line, not, phone call an email in care of this website if you still have questions or comments in this area you can also email me personally my address is provided at the end of this teaching okay I do want to say this however because of the example that the Torah gives us and tells us that avraham was I want to say this okay any man willing to do so is eligible to become an heir. Of this great father, any man willing to join the family of Avraham is welcome to do so. it's not a closed family that's the wonderful thing that I want to convey to you at the end of part A of this commentary is that because of Avram's trusting faithfulness to Hashem's command, because he subsequently became the father of many righteous followers that would come in his and following his footsteps because he walked righteously. And of course he did that by the power of Hashem. Because he's done that, we too can walk in his footsteps. He provided a wonderful example for us. And because he walked righteously, we now are the children of this righteous father. He set the example. And his obedience paved the way for us to join the family. I believe it would be something that Paul would affirm. Last but certainly not least, because of Avram's trusting faithfulness, a single righteous man was born into his lineage from this single righteous man came the power to join the physical and or spiritual family if you will of the creator of all man this man's name is yeshua god's chosen family consists of those physically born into avram's lineage and of course according to romans chapter 2 it says that these lineage these family members are uh, those whose praise comes not from men, but from God. But I believe that it's also comprised of those who are spiritually born into Avram's lineage. That might include non-Jews, I would say. And the Torah is true as well concerning them. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 describes all of Avram's children as those whose praise comes not from men, but from God. So I'd have to ask you, are you part of the family? If you're not, you can be. a note by the way for this commentary Um, I wrote a commentary called Exegeting Galatians that is available on this website as well as um, you could write to me and ask for it and Exegeting Galatians was meant to serve as a companion exposition to this particular teaching that I'm about to read to you Okay? I highly recommend reading both of them together both credited to him as righteousness as well as Exegeting Galatians you ready? We're starting at the top of page 7 if you're following on the written commentary Throughout his letters, the Apostle Paul, which I call Rav Shaul from time to time, he seems to take great interest in Avraham, referring to him no less than 29 times. And footnote number three shows um, that if we assume that Paul wrote Hebrews, the count would be um, all of those locations in Romans that I listed on the commentary there, as well as some locations in 2 Corinthians, in Galatians, and Even if we assume that Paul wrote Hebrews, we would have some references there to Avraham. James, or his Hebrew name is Yaakov, also makes use of Father Avraham in chapter 2 and verses 21 through 23 of his letter, going so far as to bring the binding of Isaac into the equation for us. In fact, for Yaakov, Avraham's faith was perfected by his corresponding actions, and I think that's really neat. But Germaine to our study, however, is the phrase credited to him as righteousness, Okay, which were penned by Moshe in our current Torah portion at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and it's referenced by Shaul in Romans 4, verse 3. In fact, let me read Romans 4, verse 3 for you. Okay, It says, quote, For what does the Tanakh say? Avraham put his trust in God, and it was credited to his account as righteousness, end quote. Given its location within Paul's arguments, both from Romans and Galatians, it's clear that the phrase is referring to what we might refer to as imputed righteousness, that is, positional or forensic right standing with Hashem. In fact, for Paul, it's axiomatic that Moshe describes this quality chronologically before Avraham receives the covenant of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. I believe that this bespeaks of the correct order in which to appropriate the covenant responsibilities of God. Let me explain. On the micro, that is to say on the small end, saving faith in God, symbolized by God accrediting his account as righteous, keep in mind the Hebrew word for righteous is tzedakah. Um, On the micro, this type of faith precedes the, the patriarch's obedience to the sign of circumcision, which shows up later on in Genesis chapter um, what is it? Where do we have circumcision showing up? Let me just look real quick. Turn to the text. It is in chapter 17. So rather it's it's in chapter 15 where God says, um, credited to him as righteousness, but in chapter 17 he gets circumcised. On the macro, on the larger end, the covenant of Abraham precedes the covenant with Moshe. You know, We read about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and following, and we don't even catch up with uh, the giving of Torah until Exodus chapter 20. Thus, we can infer that Shaul brings Avraham into the argument to show that forensic righteousness is conferred to those who are not circumcised, as well as to those who are red Gentile and Jew, respectively. I'm sorry, Let let me read that again. That was a little confusing. Basically, what Paul's saying is that because Abraham is circum, because Abraham is credited, or, or uh, because Abraham is spoken of as being credited as righteous, and because he receives this, um, how shall we say, status before he's circumcised, technically he's a Gentile in that in that setting, and yet because he goes on to become circumcised and continue walking in God's ways, he becomes the father of the Gentiles and the Jews respectively. That's what I'm trying to say. Let me just read Romans chapter three, verse twenty-nine and uh pick up our discussion there let me read Romans 3:29 quote or is god the god of the jews only paul asks rhetorically isn't he also the god of the gentiles yes indeed he is indeed yes he is indeed the god of the gentiles paul goes on to say that's a quote from Romans 3:29 which fits what i'm trying to say god is the god of both the jews and the gentiles and if we just use abraham as an example abraham is circumcised after he is called righteous but let's read Paul's quote out of Romans 4, verses, this time 9-12, through 12, a little lengthier quote. Now, is this blessing for the circumcised only, or is it also for the uncircumcised? It really sounds like he's saying the same thing, right? Let's keep reading. For we say that Avraham's trust was credited to his account as righteousness, but what state was he in when he was so credited? Circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision but in uncircumcision. In fact, he received circumcision as a sign, as a seal of the righteousness he had been credited with on the ground of the trust he had while he was still uncircumcised. I'm still reading right out of the New Testament here, the Apostolic Scriptures. This happened so that he could be the father of every uncircumcised person who trusts and thus has righteousness credited to him and at the same time be the father of every circumcised person who has not only had a Brit Milah, but also follows in the footsteps of the trust which Avraham Avinu had when he was still uncircumcised. That's Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. But we have to stop and ask ourselves, what is it about the narrative in Genesis that leads Moshe to finally declare Avram, or Abraham is righteous at this juncture. Is there something within the story that would cause any reader to make the same assumption? What's going on in the mind of the Holy One? Perhaps we can draw some conclusions by looking at the passage from a telescopic overview. So, allow me to elaborate. The flow of the Genesis narrative... Has been an interactive look at Avraham and his contending with God ever since God called him away from his from his native land, in chapter twelve, verse one through three. There, in what amounts to a unilateral agreement, we find that Hashem promises to increase his offspring beyond number. The corresponding covenant ceremony will be later enacted in pasukim. Verses that is Pesukim seven through twenty of chapter fifteen. However, leading up to this point and trailing afterwards, is a grammatical clue as to what or whom Avram actually placed his trust in. Let's let's uh, zero in and find out. In Breshit twelve one in Genesis twelve one, Moshe recalls that Adonai spoke to Avram, and the Hebrew reads. Vayomer Adonai el Avram. That's footnote number four. However, if we trace every occurrence where God and Avram interact, from this point forward, I think we're going to discover something quite interesting. Continuing with our investigation, Hashem appears to Avram in chapter 12, verse 5, and the Hebrew reads, Va'yera Adonai el Avram. That's footnote number five. And also in chapter 13, verse 14, we find that Adonai again speaks to Avram. Footnote footnote number 6 reads in the Hebrew, Va'adonai Amar el Avram. But when we arrive at chapter 15, the narrative appears quite odd. Instead of God appearing or speaking to Avram like we just read, the first clause of the first verse records, let me read the Hebrew first. The translation is, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram. Likewise, verse 4 confesses, That's the Hebrew. The translation is, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying verse 6 of chapter 15 reveals Avram's reaction to the word of the Lord by stating that it was at this moment that he believed the unbelievable and it was credited to him as righteousness there's our phrase that's where Paul picks up his midrash in Romans. I'm sorry in Galatians Remember, up to this point, Avram had remained childless. And, you know, you got to admit that he was probably beginning to suppose that maybe the heir of his household was to be the recipient of God's promise from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. The narrative of chapter 15 trails off with statements amounting to, quote, Adonai said to him, I am Adonai, that's verse 7, and the Hebrew of that would be, let's see, Adonai said to him, I am Adonai. The Hebrew would say, Vayumer elai ani Adonai. That's footnote number 8. And then also, um, verse 18 records in English, That day Adonai made a covenant with Avram. Uh, the footnote in Hebrew reads, Bayom hahu karat Adonai et Avram brit." Who or what, you might ask yourself, is this mysterious word of the Lord that suddenly appeared in the parenthesis of the with, in the narrative with Avram? By the way, I say suddenly um, because the Hebrew says Hineh. And in the footnote to number 10, the Hebrew word Hineh is explained by Jewish authorities as quote, untranslatable. It's often rendered here as it's, it's, I'm sorry, it's often rendered as "here" or behold. But this is an approximation of an expression that has no equivalent in the Indo-European languages. It's for this reason that it's often left untranslated. Sometimes your version won't even translate hine. In general, the footnote goes on to say, it serves to intensify a statement and to provide emphasis, is what they go on to say. Navigating the Bible, which is an online commentary that you can look at, uh, goes on to say that the intensity denotes that it was a sudden or intense experience. That's why it says, suddenly the word of the Lord showed up to him. It's just kind of an intense interaction between the word of the Lord and Avram. At any rate, I want to quote from the sages of blessed memory, the Chazal. I want to let them add their input to this Hebraic feature of the story. Let me make a quote from the... Um, Let's say the Jewish Encyclopedia at pages four sixty four through four sixty five. Let me read this, okay? Quote: In Scripture, the word of the Lord commonly denotes the speech addressed to patriarch or prophet, and there's some references there: Genesis, Numbers, First Samuel, and Amos. But frequently it denotes that the it it frequently denotes also the creative word. Quote: By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. There's a reference to Psalms and. Um, There's also reference um, that says that, For he spake, and it was done, uh, from the book of Psalm. He sendeth his word, and melteth them. That is to say, the ice that he's melting. Fire and hail, snow and vapors, stormy and wind, fulfilling his word. The reference is from Psalm, uh, a a few passages in the Psalms there. In this sense, the Jewish Encyclopedia goes on to say, It is said, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Another reference from the book of Psalms. The word heard and announced by the prophet often became in the concept of the seer an efficacious power apart from God, as was the angel or messenger of God. And there's another quote from Isaiah. The Lord sent a word unto Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. Isn't that neat? He sent His word and healed them. Another reference from the book of Psalms, and you can compare His word runneth very swiftly. That's in also in the book of Psalms. End quote from Jewish Encyclopedia. I surmise that the word of the Lord is in fact the Lord Adonai Himself. The word of the Lord is in fact the Lord Yehovah Himself. This much is made clear by the objective text and the sub, uh, subsequent notations that we observed in Hebrew via the footnotes that I read for you. But let us take it one step further to complete the mystery. In Aramaic, the sister language to Hebrew, the translation of word becomes ma'amar, from which we get the word memrah. Since the Hebrew word was already identified as possessing personality, the corresponding memra likewise took on an identity of its own. Isn't that fascinating? Early Jewish theologians defined the memra uh, or the word of lord with six different characteristics. In fact, in his first portion to the Gospel Yohanan, John, he also associates each of these uh, qualifications with their messianic fulfillment in Yeshua. Let's read them, okay? These six claims were number 1. Memra is defined as distinct yet the same as God. This struggle as to the nature of Hashem persists to this day. It's a kind of a we say struggle but that I mean poetically. Messianic Jews point to the use of the term echad as a composite unity to assist in the explanation of this word issue. You know, the word becoming flesh, the word was flesh. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That's what I mean by that struggle, that tension. Yohanan, in verse 1-1, states it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Hebrew says, uh, what does the Hebrew say in the beginning? was The Hebrew says, Um, um Yeshua himself spoke of the fulfillment of this attribute when he stated, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are echad. That's John 10.30. Number two. The second attribute of the Memra, the Word of God, was that it was the agent of creation. Yochanan states that Yeshua fulfills this in John 1.3. Quote, All things came to be through him, And without him, nothing made had being. Now, Rabbi Shaul succinctly stated this in Colossians 1 verse 15b through verse 16. Referring to Yeshua, he quotes, says, He is supreme over all creation because in connection with him were created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, lordships, rulers, or authorities. They have all been created through him and for him. Number three, the third attribute stated that the Memrah was the agent of salvation. This is according to the rabbis. This is claimed in Yohanan 1 verse 12, John 1 12, quote, But to as many as did receive him, to those who put their trust in his person and power, he gave the right to become children of God. End quote. Yeshua stated his role as agent of salvation several times, most forcefully in John 14.6, the latter half of the verse, quote, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. End quote. Number four. The fourth Jewish attribute of the Memrah was that Memrah was the agent of the theophany. Theophany is just a fancy word meaning the visible presence of God. In John one fourteen, one reads, The Word became a human being and lived with us, and we saw His Shekhinah, the Shekhinah, that is to say the glory, of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Indeed, one might consider the incarnation reality of God in Messiah, Yeshua, to be a prolonged theophany, as it were, a prolonged viewing of God. And again, as Rav Sha'ul forthrightly stated, in this time in Colossians 1.15a concerning Yeshua, quote, He is the visible image of the invisible God. Thus, a prolonged theophany, if you will. But having his own unique personality, I believe. Number five, the fifth attribute, uh, attribute of the Memra, according to the rabbis, was that of being the agent of covenant signing. And in John 1.17, the author writes... For the Torah was given through Moshe, grace and truth came through Yeshua the Messiah. Quote. This was the fulfillment of the prophetic words of Yerim yahu that's Jeremiah, written in the 31st chapter of his self-titled book, verses 30 and 32, or, I'm sorry, verse 30 and 32 in the Hebrew, but verse 31 and 33, in your English Bibles. Let me quote those verses, okay? Quote Here the days are coming, says Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Yehuda. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Says Adonai, I will put my Torah within them and write it on their heart. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Number six. The final attribute of Memra was that of being the, how shall we say, agent of revelation. Again, Yochanan writes of this in verse 18 of his first chapter of this gospel. Quote, verse 18: No one has ever seen God, but the only and unique Son, who is identical with God and is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. End quote. In fact, when Philip asked Yeshua to reveal the Father what was Yeshua's reply? It was, quote, Have I been with you so long without your knowing me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Again, that's John 14, verse 9. Isn't that interesting? Indeed, as the scholars have summarized, quote, the writings of John confirm that his understanding of Memrah was 100% Hebraic. This is what Christian scholars surmise. His writings of the Memra, his understanding of the Memra, was 100% Hebraic. It wasn't necessarily a new thing, like a Christian thing. They go on to say that he affirms, John, he affirms that Yeshua, that Yeshua fulfills all six attributes, and that all, and that he also fulfills the Jewish expectations of the Memra of his day, end quote. Let's draw some conclusions to this particular set in my commentary. This next section is called Conclusions. Avram placed his trust in Adonai. That much is true. In fact, the raw data gathered from the narrative tells us that it was the word of Adonai who received the object object of such faith. He did not merely place his faith in Adonai, in Hashem. He placed his faith in the word of Adonai. To be sure, Avram's response is unique. How so? Avram employs the moniker Adonai God, and the footnote shows that uh, here's what Avram said in the Hebrew. He says, "Va'yomer Avram Adonai Yodevevhe." That's the footnote to number twelve, and he chooses this phrase Adonai God or Adonai Yodevevhe instead of merely Yodevevhe like in say chapter 14 verse 22. And in fact the Hebrew of chapter 14 verse 22 reads El Adonai El Elyon. Unto the Lord the most high God is what the translation is. That's footnote number 13. In fact Sarna makes this shift in makes note of this shift in titles in his commentary to Genesis let me read a quote from the JPS commentary to Genesis the Jewish publication society 1989 on page 113 nahum m sarna writes quote this hebrew divine title rarely used in the torah appears here for the first time it is used in a context of complaint prayer and request here the word for Lord is Adonai, my Lord, not the divine name of Yodhe Vavhe and its use suggests a master servant relationship. That's what Adonai means. Abram does not permit his vexation to comprise I'm sorry, to compromise his attitude of respect and reverence before God. End quote. So what are we to make of this exchange? Might I suggest, under the guidance of the apostolic scriptures, my suggestion is that the memra of Vavhe appeared to Avram in such a way as to allow Avram to address him, the memra, as a servant would address his earthly master in respect, which is why he says Adonai Yirevavhe. Did Avram see a man? Possibly. Did he see the Lord? himself did he see Vave? you know i can't be dogmatic either way you're welcome to speculate on your own but one thing is sure Avram believed the unbelievable but it was to the word of the lord the memra that he addressed his objective faith surely hashem saw into the heart of the patriarch and recognized the appropriation of the choices that lay before him what is more only the Lord Himself can supernaturally open the eyes of a man to allow him to make a choice between choosing his Messiah or rejecting him. Avraham choo- um, chose to lay hold of the promise given in Genesis chapter 12, verse one through three, the one that we quoted at the onset of our commentary. Avraham chose by seeing at the heart of such a promise a glimpse of the Messiah who would bring it to pass. That's what I believe is taking place here. I believe that Abraham looked into the future by faith and saw that the Messiah was the one spoken of when God said, I will bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you. And through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through your offspring, Abraham, through the Jewish people, but namely, and more importantly, through Yeshua the Messiah. In closing, Tim Hag provides a concluding thought to our study. Quote, The response of God is said, once again, to come via his, quote, word, in quote. That is, the word of the Lord came to him saying, in quote. And, 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 Tim Hag is quoting a verse there. Tim Hag goes on to say, God assures Abram that he will indeed have a son, and then he takes Abram outside to give him a sign of the promise he just made. But the sign itself requires faith. For God shows Abram the stars and declares, quote, So shall your descendants, literally seed, be. Not only would Abram have a son, I'm sorry, end quote to the verse. Not only would Abram have a son, but the descendants of Abram, Tim Hague goes on to say, would endure from generation to generation, so that in the end, the offspring of Abram would be beyond counting. Tim Hague concludes by saying, but would god's word i'm sorry but would god's word as promised of a son be enough for abram after all it had been some time perhaps as much as 20 years by the sages reckoning since the initial promise had been given and there was still no son sarai was still barren in fact god's word was enough for abram as the next verse verse 6 indicates quote and he believed in the lord End quote Moses has reserved this clear statement of Abram's faith for the moment when the promised son is specifically the focus of his attention. Surely Abram believed from the time that God first revealed himself to him. His actions prove his faith. He left Ur, traveled to the place that God has indicated, forsook the idolatry of his fathers, and he worshipped the one true God. But, Tim Hague goes on to, uh, to note, Moses intends for us to see that Abraham's faith was cast upon God in a particular fashion, that is, in connection with the promise of his son. And thus we have the all-important verse, quote, And he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. End quote. That footnote of Tim Heggs, by the way, in case you're interested, was taken from Parashah 12, which is available on his website at TorahResource.com. The copyright was 2003, and it's from page 2 of that particular commentary. And with that, we conclude our commentary. Thus, the closing blessing is as follows Baruch Atah Adonai Elohenu Melecha Olam Asher Natan Lanu Torat Met olam Adonai, Amen. The translation, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, you have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song, Shema, was written produced and performed by ryan kingsley for information on contacting ryan you can reach me by email at yeshua 613 at hotmail.com that's y-e-s-h-u-a number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com